Welcome to Adversarial Learning. Joel here. Welcome to another episode. We got a great episode for you this week. Our guest is a friend of the podcast, uh, Juliet Hoagland, uh, and she'll be here in a minute to visit with us. Yeah. So uh, your usual logistics. Uh, you're listening, so you've obviously found the podcast. But if you'd like to direct other people to the podcast, you can go to adversariallearning.com. You can follow us on Twitter at adversarial underscore L. Uh, we don't tweet much, mostly when there's new podcasts to listen to. And uh, you can find us on iTunes or Stitcher or your other favorite podcast thing. And you can send us an email at adversarial.learning.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we get very few emails, so if you send us one, we will probably respond to it. Uh, if you have a guest you want us to have on the show or a topic you want us to talk about, or a genre of music you'd like a theme song composed for, uh, let us know. And now, without further ado, here is your episode. Well, thanks for another joining another episode. Uh, this week we have a special guest, Julia Hoagland, who is a the head of data science for engineering at Cloudera. Uh, Julia, would you tell our listeners about yourself? Yeah, so I've been working in data science and software engineering in Silicon Valley for the last five years. Um, I, when I left college, I decided I should go to grad school, but just long enough to get a master's degree and leave and go get paid to do stuff I find interesting, which is basically fixing problems, doing math. And it worked out pretty all right. A lot of interesting things to work on out here and also lots of interesting things going on <laughs> in this area. Yeah. What was your master's in? Applied math. Okay, yeah. And what was your undergrad? Math and physics. And so oh, nice. I had a thesis advisor in undergrad who was a physics professor but had done applied math PhD. When I told him I was considering doing a theoretical physics PhD, he was like, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but let me tell you about me and all of my friends' experiences. And he basically painted a picture of like a of cutthroat academic scene with almost no, you know, tenure track jobs and sort of like endless postdocs. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people ending up going into, you know, high frequency trading or whatever, where they would have been better served doing an applied math degree. Mm -hmm. So he's like, yeah, you know, theoretical physics could be fun, but also maybe kind of boring. And mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe what you should do instead is go study applied math. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I was a math major and I went to all my math profs for career advice and they're all like, yeah, I went to math grad school. You should go to math grad school too. Yeah. And like that was, I think that was the extent of their reasoning, but I didn't know any better. So I just right. listened to them. Well, I think that's like the standard academic advice for professors who don't, I think that's the standard academic advice. Yeah. Like you understand one career track and that's the sort of thing that you tell people is fun and good because it's worked out well for you. you have that that's like, great. Yeah, absolutely. Do what I did. That's bias. <laughs> Look at me. I mean, it, it's also the case that, uh, 
I'm old. So at the time I graduated, like no one really knew what you did with a math degree other than go to grad school. You could become like a Wall Street quant or you could become like a management consultant. And those were or you become like a high school teacher. And those were kind of the three options that we knew about. There was a different track for for teachers in, in my degree, too. Yeah, I mean, ours there was, too. But um, if you were on the grad school track, you could still that wouldn't preclude yeah. you from becoming a teacher. It was just harder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you, so after you, after your master's, what did, how'd, how'd you get into the field? Did you come directly into data science or was it more, um, software engineering first or what, how was that? Yeah. So I actually kind of lucked out. Um, I, when I left, I had, I was like in the middle of the first semester of like nothing but research, finish all my classes and exams or whatever. And I just decided it was easy to like cut off all of my obligations and start interviewing around a lot. And so I ended up with a bunch of job offers kind of all over the place. And a lot of them were very focused on data science where it was like, okay, you're going to do a little bit of programming, a lot of like analytical solving things. Um, the one that stuck out to me was at a company called Weeby Data, which was tiny at the time. They had five employees oh, yeah. and they were building a platform for machine, like for real time machine learning, um, of serving and model building uh, built on HBase. And basically what they told me, they're like, look, you know, where we're at with our product right now is that we don't need a data scientist, but we do need someone to help. And pretty soon we will need someone who's very experienced in math and can like bring that sort of expertise. And so how about we do, we have like a trade. We'll, we'll teach you how to be a good software engineer, at least a better software engineer than you are now. And eventually you'll get to use your math skills. And I was like, that's not, and like of all the options, they actually paid the least, but compared to grad student salary, I was excited about just about anything. And so I decided to go for the the option of like what I was going to learn the most and and like what was the weakest part of my skill set. because like software engineering skills, like they do not teach you that in applied math grad school. No, no. that's that's cool because a lot of people who get into situations like that where the person says we don't need a data scientist now but we know we do often doesn't work out so that's that's awesome to hear that that worked out for you yeah it definitely like the i got what i wanted out of it like i had a goal of like okay i want to i want to understand programming better i want to understand software engineering practices and like integration testing and like what like how how this all works and fits together and so that was a really a very good experience and especially like version control is new to me which i cannot believe that i made my way through applied math grad school without version control like in retrospect yeah. it's yeah. like it, it's like a shame and embarrassment um it's like they don't teach it they don't teach it is very like computational and as a field it sort of like grew out of computational work and i remember taking this class on a multi-grid methods which is like basically an op- like an optimization method that's used for solving numerical partial differential equations. And in this class, they're like, okay, we're going to like slowly build up your own implementation of more and more advanced multi-grid methods. You have your, you have two choices, C++ or Fortran. <laughs> and I kind of love that Fortran was an option. Yeah. Um, I chose C++. I was like, okay, I guess I'll, I kind of like muddled my way through understanding C++. And I had like a friend that used to be a software engineer who sort of like, gave me a crash course to help me out. But as I implemented this and like tried to get it working correctly, I didn't use version control and I still don't understand how it ever worked. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, were so, you the only developer? Uh, what do you mean? 
I mean, it, was it just you or were you working with teammates or your, your advisor? No, so like, it was like a, it was like a constant independent homework assignment. So we would always okay. like, people would talk about it and like, you know, Oh, how are you, how are you testing to make sure it's going correctly? Cause like, yeah, you can get uh like one of the tricks with it was like, you could get it to converge, but if a convergence rate wasn't fast enough, you haven't implemented it correctly. Oh yeah. So, you know, things like that. So we talk about it, but all of us were working independently on this as an assignment. So, so let me ask you this because I've, I've similarly taken jobs that were uh, pay cuts, but yeah. where I thought I was going to have the opportunity to learn a lot. And occasionally they were framed like that. Sometimes they were not. And that was just my take on them. Um, so I, my sense is there's a lot of people out there, like not just you and me, who are like, you know what, I would love to be in a situation that I'm maybe not qualified for on paper at this point, but is going to teach me a lot and get me much further in my career. And I'd be willing to do that for you know possibly even less money. Why is there not more of, more of that out there? Is it because training people's hard or? Yeah, I mean, I think training people is hard and having, like, having management that is willing to take the time to train someone. Like small startups are are it's like that's a tricky position because they need people that can quickly contribute but also like they it's hard to attract people to them because they're so risky and i got i think i lucked out because there was one person uh kian amadizade who ended up being my like assigned mentor basically and he like he and i are still close still friends we worked together at a second startup after that um and it was amazing to work with him because I think one of the things that really made that successful and one of the reasons that, that uh, Weeby Data was willing to have that kind of arrangement with me was that Keon was really excited about mentoring. And so, like, having having someone that is, like, excited to share what they know and really wants to, like, like work with you and collaborate, like, that ended up being amazing. And I think one of the things that was beneficial for Weeby Data is that they understood that I had a really strong skill set that they needed soon, but not quite yet. And so there was like so an immediate future where they could see using this, like the very specific and hard to get skills that I had. Um, but did you ever get to that point where you, you were using your, your degree and your skills? I, I mean, I feel like it's so rare that it, that the math actually touches things that, yeah. um, <laughs> th- things that are comp- complicated enough for me to have like learned in grad school or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think at Weeby Data, it was, it got to points where it was useful that I had experience building machine learning models. And like okay. could talk about it and could like help. So, I mean, I think in particular we had uh, a piece of the software that was like how to um, design the machine learning p- pipeline and then also productionize it in this like server that talks to HBase kind of system and make sure that it's real time. And so like being able to define that flow was close, but in terms of actually using math, like, no, not really. Well, you knew, I mean, the tensor and matrix math understanding too, right? Yeah. I mean, so there, I feel like there's baseline math that ends up being incredibly yeah. useful. And so I would say that not like the super advanced stuff, I it's, it's rare and I get excited when I get to use that in my job. But the fact that I have just like, I've spent years and years and years and years studying math and that like, sort of like, eh, like almost, it almost feels intuitive because I've done it so long. That, that feeling and that sense of mathematics ends up being really useful and powerful because I can think about things faster or sort of like fit a problem into the right mm-hmm. bucket quickly. Mm-hmm. Why was the company called Weebee Data? Um, well, so it used to be called Odiago, which if you've watched Silicon Valley is a lot like Aviato. <laughs> and so really anything's an improvement on that. Yeah. Um, 
Weeby Data is kind of named, well, it's basically named after Weeby Sushi, which is like a restaurant in the Mission. It's like W-I-B-I, right? Yeah, the company was, it's spelled W-I-B-I. Um, the, oh, it's not like, oh, I was thinking like W-E space B-E space Data. Yeah, no, it was like one, like W-I-B-I Data, but then the sushi restaurant was Weeby, like you spelled Data. Okay. Okay. So that is that an explanation? Like, I feel like so that's still an empty explanation. Yeah, no, I mean, mo- most startups don't have good explanations for why they're called what they're called. Mm-hmm. Like the, the demand wasn't taken. <laughs> so, it, so when I, I worked at a startup called uh, Decide, um, which was an online shopping site, but when I joined them, they were called Price Yeti. Um, and, and the idea was that uh, it started off as like a subscription service. I put it in. Uh, you know, a URL for something I want to buy and it will track the price. And, and I know, should I buy it yet or not? So it's price yet. Um, mm-hmm. And then when it came time to like raise money or something, uh, they decided that name was too cute. So we went through this exercise where we were like, we all sat in a conference room for like days and tried to come up with a better name for the company. Sasquatch. And it was, and we like hired some consultants who like, uh, they would suggest names and the, they were like naming experts and their suggestions were all horrible. Oh, well, I mean, it's like, sir, I'd be like, what's, what makes this company sound expensive? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, decide was good for that. Right. I mean, that's like a, it's a decisive name. Well, clear, so we data is now likelihood. Likelihood. Oh, okay. Oh, that's a good name for a company too. Yeah. I actually I like that, that much that. better than we data. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of the realm of prediction IO. What's but it, I'm, I'm surprised that you, you came into data science and software engineering without a physics degree, though. I mean, uh, I, I, th- I thought I read recently that the, the best software engineers are, are coming from physics. She did have a physics degree. Oh, sorry, sorry. Okay, so that, that makes sense then. Okay. <laughs> Does it make sense? <laughs> um, I feel like most academic degrees have such little tie to data science when you do day to day. And they're like... Having other than maybe statistics or computer science, um, like there's such a little tie that like the things that I learned in physics, I don't know they they make me sound smart. Like when people hear I have a degree in math and physics, they're like, oh, that that makes you smarter. Like they have the, oh god, I feel like it helps balance out the being a woman thing. Sure. It's like oh, math and physics, well. You're one of those smart ladies. Like, oh. one, of my, one of my math professors uh, said after I graduated, the great thing about a math degree is that people incorrectly assume you're really smart. Yeah. And it's always stuck with me because it, it really is like that. Well, um, I feel the same way about the applied math where like you hear applied math and you're like, oh, that's, you know, the math that applies to whatever I need you to do. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly I, what it means. Yeah. The applied math, I, I never, I, I did, I did a lot of simulation stuff in my undergrad, and I think, I think applied math would, would be something I'd like to look at too. I mean, yeah. that's what we do. That's what we do in the job. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, uh, I was actually briefly a physics major for like maybe a semester or so. Yeah. Um, and I was just, I was bad at it. Um, was the main reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I was what? bad at lab work, um, and I was bad at the physics too. So. Physics is really hard. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that uh, I was good at the part, I was good at the first semester part where it's like, you know, you're shooting a cannon and figure out where the cannonball lands and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, but then we get to the second part where it's like, you're, you're moving a magnet inside a coil and you have to use like Stokes theorem and Green's theorem and all that stuff. Like, Induction. I'm, I'm, 
I'm no good at that. I mean, I, I have a graduate degree in mathematics and I'm still no good at like Green's theorem yeah. and Stokes theorem and all that stuff. I, in undergrad, I was originally uh, physics and art double major, but then I got to quantum mechanics and I actually had like a religious crisis where I just thought, I just, <laughs> sure, it works out on paper, but I just can't, I couldn't accept it. And I, I dropped out of that major. So, um, That's but like the, a reason to reject something. It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> so, so there was this uh, this article that came out last month. Um, oh yeah, that's the one. Move over coders. Physicists will soon rule Silicon Valley. Um, <laughs> the Wired article. Yeah, it was in Wired, um, and it has a, a big picture of Oscar Boykin at the top, who I only know from Twitter. So all I know is his Twitter avatar, and the picture is him from a different angle, which is weird. Um, <laughs> He's a multifaceted man, is what you learn from this article. He has a front view and a side view, it turns out. <laughs> um, so, so, so the question is, like, are physicists going to rule Silicon Valley? I mean, no one's going to rule Silicon Valley, except for maybe Peter Thiel. But, right. um, but do physicists have some sort of, like, extreme advantage over non-physicists in the Valley, either for data or software or whatever? I mean, for data, they do like they also have the the tensors and the the matrix math, and they have a sense of um, being able to compare stuff in space and things like that. So that's that's an advantage. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I think like one of the things that is that one of the things that makes sense to me about this is that like people that are interested in physics are very inquisitive and they want to understand how things work and they take an analytical approach to it, and so like. Those types of skills translate well, but I think a lot of what this article says to me is exactly what I already knew about the Valley, where it's like, oh, if you can have all the right signals that you are like the right smartest person in the room kind of thing going on, then people will immediately like flock to you and assume you know what you mean. And like, yeah. I think like kind of like what we're talking about with like math degrees, where you have a math degree, people just assume that you're like real smart, which is not necessarily true. <laughs> But like having no understanding of like what it means to do physics or what it means to do math, people are able to paint this picture of like, oh, you were just the, you know, the, I don't know. But also being real smart isn't necessarily the thing that should be the only, it shouldn't be the only thing you look at when you're hiring or when you're starting a company with somebody too. I mean, if you, you can be real smart and then, and be real good at burning through starts through funding, right? So you can, and you can also be real smart at, at being a jerk to everybody at work. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, like Silicon Valley is built on hubris, right? <laughs> America is built on hubris. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean the the thing, the problem with the, um, I mean I agree that I agree that doing math and physics and other and chemistry and, and other other analytical fields does they they do and especially if you do an advanced degree, you get a lot of training in going through what's required to learn and and you know, being comfortable feeling ignorant and stupid until you learn it. Um, which I think is a good, it's a good attribute for somebody who's trying to learn how to program computers. Um, but you know, that's, that's not the only, like there's, I've worked with plenty of people who were incredibly talented at programming computers and, uh, I would never, ever recommend them to, to anybody to work with. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, so I, I did, you know, two years of math grad school before I dropped out. Um, and I would say the two most valuable things I got out of math grad school um, were one, how to learn new things really fast because, you know, someone shows mathematicians work on like obscure shit, like 
they just do. So like whatever you work on, there's probably only like 10 other people in the world who work on that. But nonetheless, you go around and give seminars on it. And so you have to like sit in these seminars and pick up what people are doing like, you know, in 10 minutes, even though it's not something you knew about. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the other thing is in math grad school, you're always giving these presentations to your professors and way more so than in an industry setting, these professors kind of hold your future in their hands, right? Because they're a hoop you have to jump through if you want to succeed in this field. Uh, and so those are real high pressure presentations. Um, if you screw it up, it's bad. And so compared to that, you know, giving a talk at Pi Data, whatever, wherever, or even like presenting to like the CEO of my company, like who cares? Like, worst the worst the CEO can do is fire me, and then I'll just go get a different job. Mm-hmm. But um, the, so the, for me, those are the two valuable things I got out of math grad school. But I think the thing that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way about this article was some of the just just the quotes going so so beyond. What was the one I was looking at? It was. Well, there's one here from uh, Chris Bishop who says, there's something very natural about a physicist going into machine learning. He says, more <laughs> natural than a computer scientist. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> huh. It's like, I don't know. Okay, like, I don't. Who is that? Maybe I don't know about physics to understand why that's natural, but it doesn't feel natural to me. Well, okay. So, th- so th- I can see, I can, I think I can, I can see something about what, what they're saying, which is computer scientists do tend to focus more on, or at least the people I've met or worked with tend to work more on the actual programs and the functions. And the data is assumed to be correct and available. And, um, and maybe, maybe what she's talking about is that physicists are accustomed to collecting their own data, curating it, making sure it's right, checking it 20 times, uh, having people confirm it and things like that. Maybe that's so. so uh, here's here's what I would say. Um, one, I work at a AI research nonprofit right now, and we spend so much time thinking about how to collect data. You know, how do we create the equivalent of the ImageNet data set for uh, our problem? And there's this company called Spare Five, which is basically like crowdsourcing on your phone. Um, and what they ended up doing was most of their crowdsourcing work was like labeling data for machine learning models. And they pivoted, now they call themselves Mighty AI. Um, and they're basically pitching themselves as, we will crowdsource you um, labeled data for your models. So I feel like within the computer science community, there's actually a lot of thought around how do we get data to do this? Um, okay, yeah. Be- I don't know, I would say that that's one example, but the people that... Um, think purely about algorithms and not about overall systems. Like it's easy, it's easier to slot computer scientists into that. Oh, please just go implement this very specific thing. Um, and trying to find people that understand larger systems, how people interacting with those systems, like the humans you might be collecting data about, um, and the data that they actually produce or get like gets reified inside of your system that you're building. Uh, it's hard to find people that, think that broadly. And so I think that that is something that's happening. I think it's something that has to happen in machine learning. Those are experienced machine learning practitioners. But if we're comparing people coming immediately out of school, um, which I think is like a fairer comparison, because once you get professional experience, you begin to fill in all those gaps, right? One thing I just remember. Scientists versus physicists. I think physicists do spend a lot of time thinking about how these like abstract mathematical concepts that they're using to describe the world actually correspond to the world or not. 
Yeah, you know, I was just reminded um, a, a few of the physics PhDs I know who came into data science were from astrophysics or from part of particle physics, and the, the they do a lot of uh, Monte Carlo simulations and and uh, other you know Markov based stuff. So there, there's a, actually a lot of simulations that are that are, use machine learning techniques that they've used. So there's that, there's one point in favor of physicists. Yeah, that they already do it. I think the real benefit of like like what I what I get from this article is that it's easy to find physicists in Silicon Valley because there's such a mismatch in the labor markets and like the mm -hmm. way that we're producing a huge number of physics PhDs and there's not like what do you do with a physics PhD mm -hmm. right like you become a professor you work at a national lab or question mark and it seems that that question mark is like a very large percentage of people that actually get PhDs or you know grad school in physics or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that ends up getting funneled in there. So I think this is more of a like, like marketing on both ends, <laughs> you know, we're like, yeah, Oh, yeah. You, you're a company that needs to hire someone in machine learning. Maybe consider one of these many physics PhDs. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people um, trying to, trying to jump, jump ship from academia and, and get into the industry. Um, I went to a networking event for, uh, for insight uh, a couple nights ago. Insight is the, the like the boot camp that trains PhDs to become data scientists. Oh. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and so, I'm on the radar because uh, a few months ago they had like a hiring in data science panel that uh, Trey suggested me for. So Trey and I and uh, Trey Kazi and Chris Harland went. And so now I'm like part of the Insight network, even though I don't have a PhD. So uh, I, I don't fit in at those things. People are like, "Oh, so what? What was your thesis on?" I was like, eh, "I dropped out." <laughs> Nothing but degrees. I'm leaving. <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually went into grad school with the, like, 90%, like, like my expected value of what was going to happen in grad school is, like, 90% chance that I would leave after I got my master's degree. And that was actually the same advisor who was like, no, you should do applied math on physics. It's like, nah, do you really need a PhD? Like, maybe yeah. you should just get a free master's by doing the first few years of a PhD program. Mm -hmm. And that's, it seems like a real smart thing to do. Like Because you're uh, funded, right? You're funded if you're in the track. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, I, I think dropping out is a smart, smart idea. And most people that I know that dropped out early, like, not after five years, but after two or three, like, feel pretty happy about their decision. It sounds like you do, Joel. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> oh, God, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, finishing a PhD would have done me no good and probably a lot of bad, so... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of temperamentally unsuited to be a, to be a grad student and or academic. Yeah. Um, I, I'm very good at, at projects that are anywhere from, you know, a week to a month in length. But if you tell me here's something that's going to take a year with no real intermediate results, uh, I, I can't work well in that setting. You did write a book though. So that's true. And, and that's, that's actually interesting, but, but how, how did I write a book? Um, I made an outline and I said, here are the chapters that are going to be in the book. Like that was the first thing I did. Um, and then I just went through that list and I said, okay, it's time to write a chapter on probability. And I'd spend like a few weeks doing that. Bang. I had a chapter. Um, and you know, and so I'd go and, and do this kind of triage. And then I was like, oh gosh, I don't want to write the neural networks chapter yet. So I'll put that off. And I just kind of jumped around and did that. Mm -hmm. Um, but 
for the most part, it was a very linear process, right? It's like after three months, you know, I had three months worth of progress that was tangible. And then after six months, I had six months worth of progress that was tangible. Whereas when I was doing research in grad school, um, it was more like bang your head against the wall for six months and hopefully you come up with something. And, and that could be like me not approaching it right or me not getting good advice, but that was definitely how I felt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But your writing book sucks too. Don't do it. Oh, I won't. So the... That I mean, that's that. So you've, you've answered our question for yourself about should you get a PhD for data science, no, or just should you get it in general? Right. I mean, if you if you do get a PhD, you should know what you want to do with it, and what you want to do with it should probably be be a professor somewhere, right? Otherwise, like, meh. I mean, if you if you come into this field, if you if you're in data science, that it's such a broad term that your PhD likely wouldn't help you directly in what you're working on, right? Oh yeah, absolutely not. I feel like most most graduate programs don't don't actually help you that much, right? Like I, like, so I did applied math, and that's you know I mentioned earlier when people hear that they paint a picture of whatever it is they need. They're like, oh yeah, she knows the thing that applies to my. <laughs> problem <laughs> which that's is funny. great that's nice it's like uh it's useful in some ways but not necessarily accurate right uh, so it's better than having a having a theoretical math degree where they're like what do you even do what do you, <laughs> what what are you talking about <laughs> do you know what a number is <laughs> yeah but you do mm-hmm. you do meet some people who say things like you know um i understand i may not need a phd but the idea of getting paid twenty thousand dollars a year to do just kind of research and learn stuff for five years sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, great, I, I, I cross the street to avoid those people. Yeah, they they should do that then. <laughs> yeah, um, I so, like, so, I'm glad that I kind of knew. Like, I had a sense that I was going to leave after the first semester or two of grad school. That that was like like my ninety percent went to like ninety nine percent. So I pretty quickly changed the emphasis of courses I was taking. There's like applied math at the program I went to is very like um, part, like numerical partial differential equation focused. Yuck. And <laughs> and I decided to like take the probability and stats sort of like bend instead and just take as many probability and statistics courses as I could before I left. Um, yeah. Which that is probably the most useful thing I did. <laughs> so now when I do things that are related to things that I studied in school, it's pretty much anything that I did in those probability and stats classes. That's cool. And so when people, when students come to me and they're like, how do I prepare? How do I do this? And it's like, oh, God, just please take as many like statistics classes as you can. Do you get a lot of people asking you that? Like, how do I get into data science? Yeah. Yeah. I get a fair amount of people that want to know how to get into data science or like, you know, people that were in my cohort in grad school that asked me about how, oh. how to do that transition from academia to. <laughs> how do I get out? Yeah, exactly. Do you ever get people asking you, how do I get out of data science? Oh, um, not yet. But do you do you see that as a coming trend? <laughs> um, I'm I'm the pioneer of that trend, right? I I, I in some sense, I got out of data science uh, a couple of years ago when I left my data science job to join Google as a software engineer. So, mm-hmm. um, and I did that because of this uh, view, which may or may not be proved out still, uh, that data scientists who can't write production code. Um, and don't know like software engineering pretty well are not going to be that valuable in the future. Um, we'll I see. agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's been a huge shift in what people are calling data science. And I think that data science as a term has sort of uh, 
subsumed what uh, people were calling advanced analytics for a long time. So there's there's sort of a shift, I think, in that uh, in that sense. Oh yeah, the way those the words being used is very it's broad and different, and I feel like there's a few different themes in it. And yeah. so, Joel, what you're talking about sounds sounds like more along the lines of data scientists that are like embedded in machine learning systems. Yeah, or the data engineers, right? So that's that's a whole class of folks that just sort of got carved out by people who need to label stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, so like my current role, well, my title is research engineer. So, um, But what I'm doing recently is I'm kind of like a software engineer kind of embedded in a research project. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm more responsible for the engineering and less so for the research. But I kind of have to know a fair amount of machine learning and math to be able to keep up with the researchers. Mm-hmm. That's fun. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty, it's pretty cool. Actually. Well, what other topics did we have lined up here? Well, I, I, so, so last time when we, when we had the Joel and Andrew episode, um, we talked about a bunch of stuff about free speech and Nazis and punching people. Uh, one of the things we talked about <laughs> was, uh, Curtis Yarvin, AKA Mentius Moldbug, AKA the guy who got kicked out of strange loop and the guy who, caused everyone to get super angry at, at Lambda Conf and for people to call uh, John DeGoe's uh, terrible person and all that stuff. Um, and the, the first time I ever met Juliet, which was a few years ago, uh, you know, a, a bunch of us went out to drinks and I discovered that she and I had a mutual interest in Curtis Yarvin and a fun, a fun story about how she knows him. Oh, neat. Yeah. So the second startup that I worked at uh, was located in a co-working space. And this co-working space, you know, we rented this sort of office that attached to a shared common area. And the office next to us was occupied by Tuan, which is a, a, the company behind Yerbit, which is oh, yeah. the company that Curtis Yarvin and one of the Teal uh, 30 or 20, what, 20 under 20 um, dudes created. And... I got to meet Curtis and oh, what's his name? Chris? I don't know. The the CEO who was like 20 or 21 or whatever. Um, that way. And that was my introduction to like, to, to like what I, I guess. So when I met them, I wondered what they did exactly because, you know, Curtis is in his forties, I would say. And Chris was in his, is it 21? Uh, and my fr- our first day there, you know, it's like, there were three people in my startup I decided to like, okay, we're gonna gonna celebrate our new office. Finally, have some office space, not just like working out of a living room. Um, I'll make a pie and a lunch. We'll have some pie after lunch. It'll be great. A whole celebration. So we're saying they're eating pie, and they both come in. and I offer them pie, and Curtis declined the pie. And I was like, well, that's who are you exactly, <laughs> right? Who declines pie? Yeah. Gluten, maybe gluten intolerant, or maybe, maybe. Yeah. Pie um, signifies democracy. Yeah. And so, you know, he, he mostly avoided eye contact with me until the day that they were moving out to move into a new office, which I was told they were moving into because they had bunk beds for their interns, which I'm pretty sure is illegal, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> um, and that day he even came up to me and he was like, Juliet, and he says my name and I'm like, I, how do you know my name? You never talked to me, but okay, sure. <laughs> so Juliet, you know, like you seem, seem like a smart lady, seems like we're going stuff if you ever need me to introduce you to people you know i i can i can connect you with investors just just stay in touch and so that that was like a weird from like no pie months of not talking to like hey you let me know so that was my introduction to curtis yarvin 
Um, but in that time, I started reading about Yerbit, and that became an obsession of mine. Um, it's probably one of my favorite things to talk about because as what a- is? Can you explain to us what it is? Because because neither of us actually understands it. <laughs> um, so for a while, the the, the like documentation slash marketing around it has changed three times. Uh, there's been three iterations of it that I'm aware of. So what you should do is go to like yearbit.com or whatever, and then use the Wayback Machine because the Wayback Machine will give you different versions of this. Wow. But for a while, it was advertised as a functional operating system in the cloud. Um, and the reason That's and, good. And that, if that isn't like ludicrous to you, then okay. Um, functional operating system in the cloud. Basically, oh, Google Chrome is it, that's that's a functional operating system in the cloud. Yeah, but that's not quite how it ends up working out because what what happened was I think Curtis looked at software and computers and was like, "This is all broken," which I think you know, like many people have had that reaction to computers. That's, that's the first that's the first sign that you've actually done some programming that's yeah. worth talking about. Yeah, we're like, this is just super all broken, um, and so his his response to that is to rebuild everything. So he starts with his own programming language uh, called, I'm gonna say it's called Arvo, which is really confusing because that's close to Avro, but Arvo, yeah. um, or maybe, I don't know, maybe their language is called something else, but. Uh, it's also close to Avo, which is the site where you can rate lawyers. Yeah. That's true. Uh, so it starts with his own programming language, and then from there builds on up, starts building an operating system, starts building um, communication methods between these different units that you have. And, its own networking protocol and stuff? Well, no. So that's the thing. He looks at his networking protocol and is like, you know what? We don't need to rebuild and We don't need to rebuild networking protocols. UDP is fine. And you're like, oh. what? Why? Like, why did you choose UDP? Like, are you just going to build TCP around that? Like, what? what's the plan? Mm-hmm. So um, that that is sort of odd and amazing. Um, and my understanding is basically that this piece of software is designed explicitly to be very hard to use so that only people who pass the bar be able to like install it and use it. Um, that's like, that's the, the, uh, the Unix approach, right? <laughs> yeah. or, or Haskell. Yeah. And so like it kind of ties, I mean, I, don't, I think it more than kind of ties into his political philosophy where like he wants to return to know. time before the eternal November, right? Where like eternal November, it was this time where um, when the internet was young and you only had in universities, new students would get on or maybe eternal it's September, September, right? Yeah. That'd be September. Yeah. Eternal September. Yeah, yeah. Um, new students would get online and then just like ruin everything until someone explained to them, you know, the proper mechanics and sort of like politeness, etiquette, courtesy, that you have on the internet. Um, when AOL and like every, when AOL allowed a lot of people to get on the internet, it became an internal September where people just didn't know the rules and like, you know, politeness went out the door. And so, 4chan. Hmm? like 4chan. Yeah. Like 4chan. And, and here we are today. <laughs> yeah. And so I think he wants to return to this like eternal September where you have this like high bar to get in and you've met his like intellectual requirements to join this, Functional operating system in the cloud. But here's the thing about the functional but, operating system in the cloud. What, why would I care? Yeah, I mean, what's, what's that? Sorry. All it does is function as a chat room. <laughs> oh. That's awesome. So that's like uh, the email. A, a chat room is probably the, where the high bar to get in is most needed, right? 
Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, so I think, again, this ties into his political philosophy where like, uh, when you sign up for it, uh, you get like, you, you get assigned a name, which is actually like, it's actually kind of like an IP address block. Um, but each of the numbers in your address block gets mapped, mapped to a phoneme. And so it comes out sounding kind of like vaguely English word. Uh, and that's your name. But then you also have to say what gender you are, how old you are, and what your political affiliation is. So that when you want to talk about political speech and you mark it as such. And the reason that it, they, that it claims to do that is that, you know, all political speech is violence. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, and of course, like one of the flags is the black flag, which is, is his like neo-reactionary monarchist thing. And so I like think the, that it's a that chapter the, for his like monarchist friends. Okay. So, I mean, is it a drop down for political affiliation? No, no. Free form. Like when you install it, it's all command line, obviously. And I think it only, <laughs> you, I'm not sure if you can install it on Windows. I would assume not. <laughs> um, so, I mean, could you su- su- select like sub genius as, as your viewpoint yeah. or that's interesting. Do you yeah. have, did you sign up? Do you have a, do you have a username? Um, I, I did. <laughs> I tried to get it working. I think it's frozen for a while. They like, uh, yeah, well, so I signed up. I tried to install it. The compiler, like, exploded. Um, I emailed an error and said I didn't actually want to be a part of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I got through the, like, process of, like, starting a thing. And if you, yeah, so this is the time where you would email him to get like, your, like, namespace. Gotcha. Name so, so let's say let's say I did set up a, a username and let's say I get I get in there and I'm in the chat room. What what else can I do? I mean, is there an, an API or an SDK for for figuring out who's in the chat room or, or what's been talked about. Is there a search function? Do you know? I have no idea. So, uh, no. so here's, here's, here's the million dollar question. Um, should he be allowed to speak at tech conferences? Well, so the thing that I find very interesting about Curtis's uh, technical content is that it really ties into his political beliefs, right? Like, I don't think that they're actually that separate. And I don't think that that's, I, like, which, that's been brought up. Which but, like, I, I his, still don't his know. project is like a secret chat room for people like him to talk. And that's fine. Uh, he can build that. He's allowed to. But, you know, if you have a private conference that you're holding, do you have to provide a platform to someone that is building something that's, that is like a technical support for his political beliefs? You what are his political beliefs, though? What 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 are they? Obviously, they're abhorrent because people don't like them, right? He's pro-slavery. Um, okay. He's a monarchist. Uh, he he's the type of person who's like, I'm not a Nazi. It's just that a lot of Nazis agree with me. And you're like, well, okay. doesn't okay. Um, he has so monarchist racist beliefs. Okay. So the so, question uh, is whether whether you're whether whether. Um, I guess I mean one. It sounds like another way to ask the question is: Is there is there a threshold at which someone's beliefs are abhorrent enough to enough of the potential conference goers that it uh, is okay to bar somebody from coming, even if they're not going to talk about their political beliefs? Is that fair? I mean, so here's here's another question. Like, there are people that I see speaking frequently that are like well known for. Not for making people uncomfortable at conferences or being like pr- extremely professionally aggressive or like unprofessional and aggressive. Mm-hmm. So should we allow them to speak? Cause I feel like that, like 
the, the type of public life that Curtis lives, like leads onto his public image and giving him another place to speak from is like promoting his public professional image. And he has, he has two public lives, but they're intertwined. Mm-hmm. Similarly, there's professionals that are, let me rephrase this. There are people that should be professional and are not professional and are similarly given the same like mm-hmm. stage to stand on. Right. Should we allow that? Like I would actually right. prefer that, that if people don't act like professionals and don't present themselves in a way that is professional and makes people comfortable and makes people want to talk about technology, it detracts from a conference. So, so I a hundred percent agree with that. Um, and, and I think, uh, conferences should have code of conduct saying this is what's acceptable here. And if people are unwilling or unable to abide by that, whether they be speakers or, or attendees, that they should be, uh, kicked out the door, um, without, without a real apology. Um, that said, I think the question in some sense is, um, let me think about how, how to phrase this. So, you know, Strange Loop accepted his talk. Then once the community protested and said, we don't want this person speaking here, they said, okay, you know what? Show you the door. Um, Lambda Conf accepted his talk. Uh, people protested. They sort of did a bunch of hand-wringing, which it's not clear how much of that was actual hand-wringing, how much of it was actually for show. And they said, you know what? We'll let him talk. Uh was one of those decisions wrong or is it the case that each conference was different and each conference has to do what it feels like or? So the, the way that I want to answer that is that I don't, I don't think I would want to go to a conference where he's speaking at, okay. but caveated with like, I've been to a meetup at the Urban office because I was interested in hearing about, I was interested in hearing him talk. Um, and it's, it's, Fascinating to hear him pontificate because it's like his Mencius Moldbug post, but with technology where he's like, oh, let me tell you how this relates to distributed computing and the blockchain. And like, he just goes all over the place. And his mind is clearly good at synthesizing a lot of disparate things. And that's kind of fascinating. And so like, I'm, and I think the difference for me is that like, I'm willing to put myself in, in a situation where he is presenting his own views in his own space. Um, cause that's, cause like, I feel fine with whatever risks are associated with that. Um, a community being built around it and being like, oh yes, come on in, sir. Like I find his views that are political so extreme that I, I legitimately wouldn't really want to be at a conference where he's speaking. And so the question is then like, is it okay to, to have all, have people feel that uncomfortable or like decide not to go because of that? Is it worth it to a conference? That's that conference's choice. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that that's also similarly my choice to be like, no, like you're, you're inviting him into your public space. You're giving him credibility with your conference. Like I'm not that interested in providing that, but I'm still interested in hearing what he has to say. And there are many venues where he can present it. Like he has meetups about your bit. He could record videos and put them on the internet. Right. Uh, yeah. The hard thing for me about the question is that I, I really have a, a you know just like the, se- the separation of church and state in this country I, I i believe fully in a separation of personal beliefs and personal behavior as from professional and if if somebody comes and does a professional talk at a conference i personally would be i i would not i would not mind attending the conference and hearing what the guy has to say or the gal has to say um you know when 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 people when there's in jokes and, you know, if, if, I mean, there's, there's the other side of this, which is, you know, there's, there's a lot more talks now where the speakers feel comfortable putting swears in their slides and swears saying swears. 
um, and, you know, making adult jokes on, on stage. And to me, that's sort of the other side of um, the outrage against, uh, I mean, it's not another side, it's not a spectrum, but, you know, there's, there's also other non-inclusive behavior that I've been seeing lately that I don't like. Um, I mean, you know, if you had somebody who's, you know, a very, very devout religious person and they went to the conference thinking that they were um, going to go to a professional conference and all of a sudden they're getting sworn at and it's highly offensive to them. I think that's just as non-inclusive as somebody getting up and talking about, you know, their political beliefs, which, which isn't what, uh, Yarvin was going to do. Right. Kind of. Well, yeah. Uh, the thing I would say is that like, I get where you're coming from at the same time. Like I think of myself as someone who goes to conferences and is professional and gives professional talks and, uh, to the best of my knowledge, does not make people uncomfortable at conferences. Uh, at least no one has ever given me the feedback that I do. Um, yeah. But I am also someone uh, that you might uh, not like based on my Twitter. Um, you know, I right. I a lot of times I'll see something retweeted and I'll go and and it's someone who has me blocked. But to the best of my knowledge, I've never actually interacted with them. So presumably they just block me because they don't like um, what I say in general. Uh, so I don't know, like. Could I fall into this trap? I could, right? Well, I really think that, it, like, there, I think that there is a line somewhere uh, advocating for slavery for me. Like, that's absolutely a line, <laughs> right? <laughs> and from what I can tell, you don't advocate for slavery. I think you and I don't agree on many political things, but disagreeing with someone on political things is not the same as being so, so, like, offended by the thing that not just someone believes, but advocates for and is a public figurehead for. Um, so, so, so I agree with that. But at the same time, I would say that blocking someone preemptively is, is much stronger than just disagreeing with them, right? Like, it, it, that's saying, I don't, I don't want to see anything this person has to say, like, by accident or otherwise. And, and there's definitely people who feel that way about me, just by the fact that I noticed that people have me blocked. Mm-hmm. Um, as it turns out, like I, I don't block people on Twitter. I only block brands that have stupid promoted tweets. Um, so like, if you look at my block list, it's like Buffalo Wild Wings and Walmart. I, yeah, I can, I can believe that. You, you know, the, this, uh, this makes me think of something else that I just want to rant about because it, um, cause it's, it happened to me yesterday and it's the second time it happened. Um, I get stupid promoted tweets, right? And I retweet them with like, uh, quoted tweets and I mock them. <laughs> Uh-huh. Twice this has happened that after I do this, my sarcastic retweet partially disappears. Um, and, and so well, what I mean is some people can see it and some people can't. And I'm one of the people who can't. So yesterday I did the sarcastic retweet of some tweet that I just I don't even know what it meant. But if you if I go to my timeline when I'm logged in, that sarcastic retweet does not show up. If I go to my oh, ad yeah. mentions, I can see that people liked that sarcastic retweet, but if I click on the link to like show me the actual tweet itself, just like a little blank window pops up. Um, oh, yeah. So, so like if I'm logged in, I cannot see my sarcastic retweet at all. But if I go in like an incognito window to my timeline, I do see it. And this happened to me once before, again, where I mocked a, a promoted tweet with a sarcastic retweet. And so I don't know... Like, is that a bug in the Twitter system or is they, do they get features where like you can semi like shadow hide someone who sarcastically retweets your promoted tweet or I don't know, but it's, I've never, it's weird. Seen, I've never seen that, that feature, but 
but I have seen a, a few different types of what you're talking about where um, somebody else's the the quote the quote it shows but then the the post that it is quoting is unavailable unquote right. uh, uh, you, you see a lot of those too those are potentially cache errors or something um, but it's it's been happening a lot more in the last few months yeah so Twitter it, they they have real problems with abuse and it feels like everything they try and do to solve it is like not solving it it's Wrong. just yeah. <laughs> breaking their system a little bit more now they're just blocking frog pictures any any frog pictures because I, I feel like I'm I get kidding. followed by people sometimes that are like buy 1000 followers but they've done this using like strange slightly strange characters and somehow twitter doesn't see that Oh yeah, oh, I actually I, bl I block people like that too, as well as uh, um, people that are clearly like porn bots. Oh yeah. Um, I, I used to get a lot of a lot of real weird followers, and now I don't. Maybe they're just getting better at pretending to be people that I would share interests with, or yeah. being real people. <laughs> I my personal pet peeve on Twitter right now is that I get the same promoted tweet over and over and over again. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's. It's basically like these MIT students have started a wine club. I know. <laughs> MIT wine? And it's like, I do not care where the people picking my wine went to college. I really don't. No, no, no. MIT. <laughs> yeah. I get a lot of the, uh, while you were away, just sort of being the same thing I saw yesterday. Mm. Yeah, I get those too, actually. It's like, while you were away, like, I already saw all these, right? So it's always Joel, and Trey, and Chris. Alvin. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's like while you were mentally away, like we we know you were reading, but you weren't paying attention. So yeah, I, like for for as much as we talk about like personalization and recommendations, I really, me really wish that I could like yell at a tweet, like have a sarcastic retweet, or like tell a bot to like go shove it, um, and yeah. then have that bot that. understand I wanted to go away. <laughs> so I did that to one of those uh, one of those AI scheduling bots that uh, I I'm not going to name it, but. <laughs> so uh, we could go back to Twitter, but this this no, was no, pretty, I, I, this, is, this I, was pretty fun. Um, so we we were trying to invite some other friends um, at a music streaming company to come on as a group, and and one of them um, has one of those uh, personal assistants named Amy. Amy. Uh, Amy. And uh, there's also an Andrew, so it's not just one of those like female assistant uh, tropes. But uh, so you know, I, I got an email. Hi, I'm Amy, uh, so and so's personal assistant, da, da 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 da, and I'm an AI, and I'm going to help you. And it was an email conversation, and I just started, you know, I answered, tr I, tr I intentionally tried to dumb it down, you know, like I w I am free on Thursday, blah blah blah, and and then it just kept coming back um, with with the wrong answer, you know, like I I was saying, let's do next Thursday which I believe is an, is a solved problem in natural language. Uh, and she was, it's, it's, actually it's not, it's, it's hard. Oh. NLP is, is harder than you think. Well, no, but if, if you're a, if you're a scheduling bot, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a business rule you're going to write in. Right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's not an NLP problem, but so she kept trying to, trying to schedule for this Thursday. And I kept saying, no, no, no. For, and then finally it just got to the point where I was like, Amy, let's just forget it. And she came back and apparently what happens every time I email her is she emails all four other people and asks them what they think. And um, anyway, so AI is not taking our jobs anytime soon. Yeah, I, I had the same. I mean, I was also on these and she 
I would get the she. She would email me, you know, how about Thursday at 4 p.m.? I'd write back and say, I cannot do Thursday. I'd write back, okay, how about Thursday at 5 p.m.? Yeah. I was like, was God damn like, really it. But, but, but I have this weird mental block, like, um, because it's human-like, yeah. I didn't want to, like, curse it out. But, yeah, but, I, uh, but, I, yeah. but I did want to curse it out. I was like, what the, you know, what the F are you doing? Right? I said no Thursday and you're sovereign. Th- so. I was tempted several times to tell, tell the AI to go F, F itself. And, yeah. you know, it would have been satisfying for about a second, but then it's really pathetic to have to yell at a computer program, although we do it all the time. Yeah. It's like an alternative Turing test. Like, can you build an AI that gets people t- so angry that they swear at it? They actually swear. Well, I, here's the thing. Like, I, I think that the, uh, the natural language chatbot movement would be more successful if it just said, you know, I am a robot. I will help you do email and not try to be friendly or conversational at all. You know, it'd be way better if it were just like capital Y slash N, you know? I know. You use a 2XL's voice. Do you ever have a 2XL? No. <laughs> 2XL, when I was a kid, it was this robot that you would put 8-track cassettes in its stomach and it oh. had four buttons. And so it would have like a trivia quiz. It's like, what is the capital of Kansas? Yeah. Uh, press A for Topeka, B for Wichita, whatever. And you'd press one. It would switch to that track on the four track and it'd be like, you are wrong. <laughs> we, thought it was, we thought it was really cool, but it was really sure. just an 8-track player. It's just business rules. I, I had this horrible experience with Facebook recently where... One of my friends only communicates with me through Facebook Messenger, which motivated me to install Facebook Messenger on my phone. So I was okay with this for a while. But then I get a, I get a notification and my phone buzzes. I look at it. And American Express is interested in talking to me via a chatbot on Facebook Messenger in such a way that interrupted my day and made me look at my phone. And so at that point, I tell it to, like, please go away, never talk again. And its response was, I'm sorry, I didn't get that. And they send the same message again. <laughs> and that's nice. when I both install uninstalled Facebook Messenger and Facebook because oh my you God. you uninstalled that friend. Yeah, exactly. good job. So so here here's a tip because I also I don't I won't put the Facebook app on my phone. It wants too many permissions. Um, and so I use the I use Facebook in the mobile web. But a few months ago they broke it so that you can't look at messages on the mobile web. Mm-hmm. Like it just doesn't work. It says go install our app. But if you use, uh, so I have an Android phone, if you use Chrome and you go to request desktop site, then you can see your messages. Ha, ah, perfect. Perfect. That's a good tip. I'll use that. I, I, got, I got a similar one on, uh, on LinkedIn yesterday, which was I got a message. Um, and I was like, okay, let's see like, what someone wants from me on LinkedIn. So I click on the message and the message is actually an ad for me to try Hired. And Hired is, you know. Yeah. You give them your resume and they say they'll match you with companies. And I actually tried it last time I was job hunting and they never like matched me with a single company. So I don't, um, but the only reason I noticed it was an ad was that, uh, I was going to respond to the woman who sent it, Alicia from hired and say, I don't like this. Um, and I went down to where the reply button should be and there was no reply button. Instead, there was a try hired button. Nice. Mm. Whoa. So they customized the message interface. I mean, it looked like a LinkedIn message, except that the reply button was replaced with a try hired button. Otherwise, it looked like a regular LinkedIn message. So did they purchase like LinkedIn premium or something for that right to do that or something? I, I'm, I'm sure it's above and beyond that, right? Like it's, yeah. a, uh, you know, probably they're part of Microsoft now and Satya needs a new BMW or something. So <laughs> Sure. Yeah, I don't. Uh, well, you're the one you're, you're the one that's in the new the new flight for the UI for LinkedIn, right? Yeah, yeah, I get 
I didn't realize everyone wasn't uh, on that. But yeah, I, I get this new Microsoft LinkedIn UI that takes like five seconds to render every time you click on something. Oh, it's I awesome. think I know what you're talking about. It's like very, I don't know UI words, but it changed recently. Yeah, it's, it's, it looks like a Microsoft product slightly more and like a LinkedIn product slightly less. Does the, do, do the red notifications still report the wrong thing all the time? Um, no, they, they, it seems like the counting is a little bit better, but okay. I, I can never tell. Like it says, I mean, it says I have like eight invitations, but really I have like hundreds of invitations, but maybe there's eight that I haven't like yeah. clicked on yet or something. So I don't know. I have like a persistent 39 notifications that no matter what I do, won't go away. And it's, huh. it's the, irritating. The, the bell notifications seem pretty accurate in the new uh, UI. Yeah. It's the like connection notifications that it's harder to say. But as always, in case anyone's listening, um, my rule of thumb is that I don't accept, uh, I don't accept invitations from people I don't know unless the message says something nice about my book. And then I accept it. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm easy that way. So, uh, if you're listening and you actually want me to connect with you, that's that's the tip. Have you guys started? Uh, have you joined Data Dot World, the social network for data people yet? I have no idea what that is. So, so the, they were they were in the news yesterday um, because they raised like a 19 million dollar round. What? 19 million dollar round for a social network for data people. Right. Yeah. Yes. So the, the thing that makes me sad is that, uh, so I wrote this book called data science from scratch, which is, you know, data science. Um, but the angle, not really the angle, but like the premise of the jokey premise of the book to kind of motivate things was you've been hired as the first data scientist at data science.com, the, the world's first social network for data scientists. Um, and so then the, the examples in the book have the flavor of things like, okay, now we want to recommend people to follow. But okay, it's a patently and, ridiculous idea. It, I thought it was when I, <laughs> when I used it in the book, but you know, now they've raised $19 million to Ugh. grow that idea out. Whereas I just bought a domain and stuck it on a launch rock site, but you know, I'm, I made a lot less than $19 million off the book. So that, I, that I should reminds me that my. I had some friends that made a board game recently called Maybe Capital. And oh, I think I saw that one. It's great. It's on Kickstarter. It's hilarious and fun to play. You should all go play it and support it on Kickstarter. <laughs> um, okay. Part of the game is that you, you're you all part of a venture capital fund and you have money that you invest in each other's companies. And part of it is pitching. And so you take two cards from a deck and you, you have to put the ideas together into some sort of pitch. And it's, this sounds like one of those, like, oh, it's a social network for data people. Oh, so it's like cards for humanity, but for millions of dollars. Yeah, exactly. But it's a, but it sounds like there's an improv component as well. Yes. There's an improv component and there's, there's a board involved, but it's not, you don't actually, you can move between like one to six spaces each turn. So it's more of a joy to move your pieces around the board than much of anything else. So is it funny? Is it funnest when it's just a, when it's hard or, I mean, when it's just, I mean, what, what's the funniest or weirdest pitch that you had to do when you're trying it out? Oh, I got um, puppies and organic free-range sausage. <laughs> that writes itself. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, that great. was easy and very funny. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. So what, what do we think about Cards for Humanity? I mean, you, some people love it. You see some articles that it's like the laziest, like, 
form of humor and it it's offensive not just in terms of being offensive but in terms of like people thinking that humor is just taking two offensive things and gluing them together i i've read uh, only a little bit about it um seems like sort of the modern mad libs to me yeah i i played it and i think it's fine but it's not like it's not that creative right like you just yeah. have like oh like if you know a person you're like what's going to make them laugh what's going to like kind of like push their buttons in a funny way. And like, it's, it can be fun, but it's not the most like joyous, thrilling game, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a little too set. Right. That's why the, the adding the improv aspects makes it sound like a lot more fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause then you have to put on your best, like elevator pitch. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Bob. Unfortunately, these days I'm mostly restricted to games that can be played with a five-year-old, and uh, this doesn't sound like I don't think she knows enough about Silicon Valley to. Uh, yeah, I keep maybe. I keep trying keep trying to take my my kid up to the Monday night D and D pickup game up at the the game place up on the hill, and uh, the first time we took I took her up, um, she wore her Elsa dress, uh, and so it was like she was dressed like a Ren Fair person, so she would have fit right in. But but the the game wasn't happening that night, but. That's kind of wonderful. It was so it's adorable, yeah. You probably could play D anD D with like you know five year olds. That would be Why interesting, not? actually. Yeah, I mean, what do you want to do? You, uh, you want to hit them with your sword? Let's do it. Let's roll up. You know, at my kids' school, there's actually a group of kids who play D anD D quite regularly, but sure. I think they're mostly older, so not mostly yeah. at all older. I think. I mean, I, I I figured it'd be fun to see if she was interested and get her into it. She's also interested in the ham radio hobby that I just adopted, so. Ooh, it what's your what's your call it. sign? Kilo India Seven, Kilo Quebec Alpha. Yeah. <laughs> you can Sounds find like me a on drug reference. It kind of does. Yeah, you can look at me up on qrz.com. Yeah. Are you from uh, Canada? Did you just say Z? No, but that's what the, how they pronounce it for some reason. I don't know. Mm. They say Zulu on the on the radio, but people also say Z. Hmm. Oh. But yeah, it's yeah, like so a she, fiction reference. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So I mean, on ham radio, she could she could sit there and talk to people, and she could talk to astronauts when the ISS is going over. As long as I'm there running the running the radio, yeah. So, she's pretty stoked about it. Yeah. Is that just what the astronauts do up there, like all day? They like every time they fly over a new city, there's like, some <laughs> ham radio person talking to them. As soon as they get near Hawaii, they're like, "Oh yeah, I can't wait." Yeah, 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 yeah. No, they yeah, they, there's there's guidelines. I, I just read about it yesterday. There's guidelines for when, and you know, keep in mind they're they're working astronauts, and sure, yeah, they're doing whatever, putting water in the air and making it float. I don't know what they do. <laughs> uh, Watching ants make. What <laughs> <laughs> watching bacteria grow. One of the coolest things that I ever got to do because of my physics background, actually, was I was doing an RU at Rice, like a research thing for a summer at Rice when I was in college. And that is in Houston, which is where Johnson Space Flight Center is. And so they were like, mm. hey, physics nerds, do you want to go see some spaceships? Absolutely. Sure. So we had a day trip to the spaceship spot. <laughs> and we got to go to the hangar where they had um, awesome. like different pieces that astronauts practice on. And so we saw a team practicing in like a piece of the ISS uh, and like getting ready for some of their like experiments or sort of running around. And then they all, I also got to see that the shuttles, when they're still using the shuttles, um, the way that they practice their like spacewalks is yeah. they have these giant like oversized, it's like two or three Olympic poles put together and they submerge a replica, of, like an exact replica of the shuttle 
And then they have one, an astronaut in their spacesuit in the water with a bunch of counterweights and then seven scuba divers to one astronaut. Um, to wow. make sure the counterweights are balanced and they have like one running a camera going back to like mission control or whatever to have this conversation with them as they practice their spacewalks. That sounds really claustrophobic. Being in water? Being, being in an astronaut suit inside water, yeah. Mm. I guess it's no worse than being it, outside it, in space. It's like, it's you know, when you used to, when you were a kid and you had like those deep sea diver play sets where the guy had like the, the helmet on his head with the tube going back up to the mm-hmm. surface. That's the idea, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically. Yeah, it must be weird, yeah. from, like that claustrophobic feeling of like a spacesuit in water to that like agoraphobic fe- feeling of like your spacesuit in space. <laughs> yeah, with nothing around. Yeah. All right. Um, looks like we're hitting the hour mark, which is usually oh, yeah. when we kind of wind things down. Any anything else you want to talk about or ask us? Anything you want to know about podcasting or Seattle or? Yeah. How. I'm I'm very interested in how you go about getting podcast sponsors. Have you reached out to like Mailchimp yet? Because that's that's your like thing. <laughs> Not yet. So, Not yet. So the, the short answer is we have no idea how one goes about getting podcast sponsors. Uh, and as always, we're like paying for this ourselves, uh, which mostly means Andrew's paying for it. Uh, but uh, hey, you guys should go skydiving and write to Red Bull. Oh, great idea. We know people who have sponsors, and you know. A lot of mattress companies apparently like to sponsor podcasts. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think that's what that's. I can endorse a mattress. I I use one every night. (laughs) It's a good idea. I hear there's a wine club created by MIT students that uh, MIT push there. Oh, that's a good idea. Every time I get a promoted tweet, I should respond and ask if they want to sponsor the podcast. (laughs) No, make a butt. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great idea. I'm going to do that. Not a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, you know, you get a lot for, uh, you know, if, if you want to put yourself in front of our 25 listeners, uh, we can make you a, a great deal. Your, yeah, 25 listeners and 700 uh, automated uh, podcast client downloads. Yeah. Any Anything you need to, you want to plug, uh, talk yeah. coming up? Oh, yeah. What about uh, the conference uh, coming up? Oh, yes. Yes. That's something I want to plug. Um, I'm helping put together Wrangle Conference in San Francisco. Uh, that will be the summer in June or July or sometime, you know, summertime in San Francisco. Uh, this is going to be a super sweet conference, and you all should definitely come. I think Wrangle.com currently works, but maybe not. Uh, if not, I'll just make Andrew talk about it more in the future. <laughs> sure, that works. It's, it's a good conference. I went to it last year. Yeah, Joel actually gave a really awesome talk on... It was, like a, it was like a very silly TensorFlow, FizzBuzz TensorFlow. Yeah, Fizz. Yeah, that was the that was the first time I gave that talk. I I gave it a couple more. I gave it a longer version a couple more times, and and it finally got to like a good enough place where I got sick of giving it. So. Oh yeah, I had to come no, up that's, a new talk for really 2017. Really like, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> well, it's like you. It's like you don't want to become. Uh, you don't want to pigeonhole yourself, right? You so, know, like. <laughs> On one hand, it's fun, like, hey, I'm the FizzBuzz and TensorFlow guy, but then, like, five years later, you don't want to still be the FizzBuzz and TensorFlow guy. Well, it's um, to, to call it back, it's like you don't want to be known as the monarchist when you're trying to talk about your computer stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Juliet, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Awesome, awesome. Thank, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks again for listening. Uh, your usual reminders, adversariallearning.com, adversarial underscore L, 
Uh, and if you want to send us email, adversarial.learning.podcast at gmail.com. Drop us a mail. We'll respond because we don't get very many emails. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at J-O-E-L-G-R-U-S, Joel Groose. If you want to follow Andrew, he's at A-K-M. If you'd like to follow our guest, Juliet, she's at J underscore H-O-U-G. And I believe we may have given you the wrong uh, website for WrangleConf. It's actually wrangleconf.com. So you should go check that out um, because it is, as far as I know, the only cowboy-themed data science conference. Um, If I'm wrong, someone let me know. But I'm sticking to it. Only cowboy-themed one. See you next time.